I read one of the newspapers this week, the Thursday edition, and this is an edition that represents or focuses on religion. And one of the writers was focusing on whether or not the Bible was still relevant today. Uh, she focused especially on the husband-wife relationship. Asked the question, she went around to different pastors, as to whether or not it is still the biblical teaching that a wife is to be submissive to a husband. Or is that finished with now because that was in the old times? And it was interesting to see some of the comments on that. And why this became so interesting for me, because not too long ago I heard a very prominent preacher here said that we need new revelation today because we're facing new challenges and the old ancient manuscripts don't meet those challenges. So we need prophets who will give new revelation. Isn't that amazing? That's from a leading pastor here in the Bahamas. And now it's been reflected in the papers. Are the scriptures relevant for the day or have they exhausted their usefulness? They're ancient now. We need new revelation. Well, before I get, begin to preach, let me preach on this one. Because those of you who are interested in time, please don't count this part of the time of preaching. This is just, you know. The book of Hebrews. I want to focus on this because this is becoming more and more a prominent idea. That the scriptures are of no relevance today. Book of Hebrews. Chapter 1. Verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us through his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Now skip down to chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. He's talking about the message that came from Christ through the prophets. So that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great a salvation, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, then it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. The point is this. God has spoken through Christ to the apostles, who's spoken to others who have passed it on. That's what we have today. And God's word spoken so long ago is still God's word today. It is relevant and it is to guide us in our life. God has provided all things that pertains to life and to godliness. And the word of God is one of those things. Now that's important because we're speaking about the family. We're continuing on 1 Corinthians 7 today again. This is the fifth message on the section. Got one or two more, believe it or not. On this portion of 1 Corinthians 7. The point is this. The words of God spoken through the prophets long ago concerning the marriage relationship is still relevant today. Please, that's the position that we stand upon here at Calvary Bible Church. The Bible is still the word of God. 
It is still authoritative. It is still the inspired word of God. And that's what we proclaim. Amen? Amen. If you have your Bibles then, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. As I said, this is a, the fifth message on this passage, verses 8 through 40. I've entitled it, Just Stand There, Don't Do Anything. You know, normally we get the other advice. Don't just stand there, do something. Well, I'm going to say from this passage is, just stand there. Don't do anything. Now, in the first 11 verses of chapter 7 of this epistle, 1 Corinthians, Jesus had given some instructions when he was on earth concerning the marriage relationship, and Paul is passing those instructions on. So we have to see what Paul is teaching here as that which is divinely authoritative. And he's speaking particularly concerning divorce and remarriage between two Christians. And he says in his teachings that there's no divorce for any reason, period. Now he moves on to a marital situation that Jesus did not address personally while he was on earth. So he now speaks as an inspired apostle sent with the authority of the one who sent him, who is Jesus Christ. His mandate then is carrying that same authoritative force as that of Jesus Christ. So let's go right to the text. I'm going to read from verse 10 for connection of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, please be sure you have your Bibles open before you. Be sure you see it in your Bible, and be ready to make any notes or marks, because these are important truths here. We're not here just to entertain you. We're here to teach you the word of God. So we want you to be in that mode. We want you to be in that attitude of re receptivity to the word of God. Paul is making it clear in these verses that he is repeating the teachings of Jesus Christ. Neither Christian spouse is to initiate a divorce, but if one does, in fact, disobey this divine mandate, then they must both work toward reconciliation or remain unmarried. As far as Jesus Christ is concerned, then, if there are problems in a marriage and there's any reason for separation, there are only two choices. One, get back together, work on reconciliation. By the way, this is a strong implication for the need of counseling during that period of difficulties and problems. Work for reconciliation. If you decide you cannot reconcile, and Paul recognizes that might be possible in some situations, then you don't get married. Remarriage is always out according to the teachings of Jesus Christ. But now, Paul moves on to another situation in verse 12. We dealt with that previously. Look at verse 12 now. But to the rest. These are the ones that Jesus didn't talk about. Those who are living with an unsaved mate. This is the individuals that Paul is now addressing. But to the rest, I, not the Lord. Meaning, he did not speak about the matter personally. That's all it means. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have the same authority as Jesus Christ. He's simply saying here that Jesus didn't teach anything concerning the relationship between an unsaved mate. Or unsaved mates. He didn't teach anything. But now I am doing so as an authoritative apostle of his. If any brother, in context it means any Christian husband, has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. Strong command here. Very specific. And so what Paul is saying here, if an unsaved wife is willing to continue to live with her husband if he becomes a Christian after they are married, 
And that is probably the situation because, of course, the Scripture gives commands that a Christian should not be unequally yoked with an unsaved in the beginning. So Paul isn't even addressing that because that's an already established fact, as it were. But now, if it so happens that a person becomes a Christian after marriage, then here are the instructions. If an unsaved wife is willing to continue to live with her husband if he becomes a Christian after they're married, the Christian husband is not to divorce her. And that's a direct command. Everywhere in Scripture, when a Christian is addressed concerning divorce, the mandate, the command is always the same. A Christian is never to initiate a divorce. That's the teaching of Scripture. He then goes on to give the same instructions to the Christian wife whose husband became a Christian after marriage. Verse 13. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. These commands, my friends, are clear and precise. No ifs, no buts. These are clear-cut commands. Now, this is the third time the command is given in this chapter not to divorce. The first is in verse 10. He then goes on to give the reason for this in verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Now, this is a very interesting verse here. So we're going to go through it slowly. Divorce was to be avoided, Paul is saying, because the Christian spouse was a channel of God's grace in the marriage. The Christian mate, spouse, is a channel of God's blessing in the home. Now, this does not mean that the unsaved spouse or unsaved children will necessarily or automatically be saved, but rather that they will be in a more spiritually advantageous or blessed situation than if they were in a home where there was no Christian presence. But because the mother or the father is a Christian, then the ones who are not a Christian comes under a special blessing, as it were, under the protection, as it were, the mantle of the person who is a Christian. That's the teaching of the word of God. Paul then addresses the possibility and perhaps even probability that an unsaved spouse would decide that he or she could not live with a Christian spouse and therefore they would opt to get out of the marriage, they would opt for divorce. This is what I call the second exception clause. You'll find that Paul gives several of them when he gives these commands concerning the marital relationships. Jesus gave one. We looked at that, except for Pornoia. Remember that? Now, here's another one. Verse 15. Please look in your Bibles. If the unbeliever, the unbelieving spouse, departs, let him depart. Let him go. A brother or sister, Christian, is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife? whether you will save your husband. Or well, how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? In other words, the idea is that once that unsaved person is under the umbrella of the blessing of a Christian in the home, they, it's a possibility that they could come to Christ. You must keep that in mind. Now let's spend a few minutes here, because this has posed a problem for many. Many interpret verse 15 to mean that a divorce or some interpreted abandonment or desertion on the part of a, a spouse frees the other spouse from the marriage union, and therefore he or she is then free to marry again. That's how many take this verse. But let's take a closer look at that and see if that is in fact the case. First, remember this. Paul's remarks are addressed only the case, to the case of an unequally yoked situation. That's all. He's only talking about the situation 
where one mate is saved and the other is not. Not to Christians in general. So if one is not in this situation of being unequally yoked, then this doesn't apply to you. You have to understand that. This is not a blanket statement. This is only have to do with this particular situation. Secondly, the mandate, the command is only applicable in the case where the reason for leaving is related to the Christian lifestyle of the same person. Not just because there's some incompatibility or I don't like certain things about you, I don't like the way you look, I don't like the way you cook, and so on. Or I don't like the way you smell. I walked out the house the other day and I smelled my wife. Why well, say no something? She looked good, she smelled good, and she feel good. You see? But now if you have a wife, don't look good, don't smell good, and don't feel good, that ain't no reason for you to divorce her. Maybe you need to buy some perfume and get some dress, I don't know, but that's no reason for divorce. In other words, it refers to a situation in which the unsaved spouse cannot live because the Christian is living a Christian life. That's the point. All right? And so you just cannot apply this command carte blank to every situation. You must stick to the text, the context. In other words, the one who wants to depart are objecting to Christianity, not to any so-called faults or incompatibilities of the spouse. That's important. In such a case, the Christian spouse should allow the separation or divorce to take place in order to maintain a peaceful relationship with the unsaved spouse with the idea that that spouse could come to Christ. Because it is possible that they could come to Christ even though it might not be in the home if there is that amicable relationship between them. Also, to keep resisting the unsaved spouse attempt to divorce only creates discord and tension between the two rather than a peaceful coexistence if you, if you want. Paul says then to the Christian mate, if this is the case and your unsaved mate wants to leave, even get a divorce, then let them do it. Don't get in the way. Now that's quite a thing. Because some Christians take two positions. This one says, no way, I'm, not, I'm going to fight this divorce all the way. Others say, hey, no, let him go. But I'm not going to do anything to allow, in other words, to, en to encourage them to do it. They got to do all the work. And this seems to be what Paul is talking about here. But Paul is clear. It must never be initiated by a Christian spouse. Even in an unequally yoked situation, a Christian is never to initiate the divorce. It always must, must be the unsaved one. Peter, by the way, teaches the same truth. Listen to what he says to the women in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, in the same way you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And now, I've spoken concerning this text to many Bahamians, Bahamian women. You know what they always tell me? They say, Pastor Lee, this is tough for us Bahamian women. Not to say anything? Not to preach to them? That's what Peter says. Don't preach to them. Live it. And he says, your lifestyle might be the means of winning them to Christ. Now here's the problem with this passage. It doesn't give a time limit. It doesn't say one day, one week, one month, one year, ten days. You just say, keep doing it. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Now, every time I come to this passage, of course... I've said it here before, but I want to say it again. I'm always reminded of a couple that uh, we still maintain close uh, relationship with from, from the time in Racine, Wisconsin. Where this young lady came very distraught one time to a prayer meeting that we were having uh, during lunchtime. Um, and she came in 
very distraught. Anyway, she wanted to leave her husband because she says, hey, I'm finished with it. He drinks, he smokes, he cusses. He wouldn't come to church and everything. I've done everything, and I, I just can't take it anymore. Pastor Lee, what should I do? Now, you know, in times like that, emotionally speaking, you want to give some comfort, peaceful things. But I took it to this verse. I says, I wish I could tell you to kick him out, but I can't do that. Here's what the Bible says. I says, this tells me, Linda, that if you continue to live Christ out before this man, it's possible that he could come to receive Christ as Savior. I remember how she cried and she wept and she finally says, Pastor Lee, I believe that's God's word for me. I will not get out of the marriage. I will continue to be faithful to my husband. Cut a long story short, this young man was saved in less than six months. And he came out of the gate running. He is one of the most committed Christians I have ever seen. And he's still going on full blast. And she always attributes what's happening in their life to this passage of Scripture. God honored her because she honored him and his word. But then third now. By the way, this is what we call living in peace with an unsaved mate. The possibility of his or her salvation is strong when you have that kind of relationship. To use the words of Paul, he or she, even in the unsaved state, is sanctified, set apart for God's special blessing by the relationship with the wife. That's the teaching of the Word of God. Third, the context of this passage, as well as the meaning of the word that is translated under bondage, show that Paul is saying that the Christian spouse is not to hold themselves responsible for the breakup of the marriage in such a case. And the reason why the Christian spouse should not initiate a divorce is because it is possible that the unsaved mate could be saved if they continue to be in a home with their mate or to be a relationship even outside of the home in a caring, loving relationship. It's possible that the unsaved mate could be saved. Look at the passage. Now the word for under bondage literally means to be enslaved to or to be obligated to. In other words, the enslavement has to do with an obligation. Now these, the ideas of being enslaved to and to be obligated to have a very subtle difference or connotation. If you read the NIV version, they use the words or the term that the, the mate is not bound, the Christian mate is not bound, thereby implying that the believing spouse is freed from the marriage and therefore is able to marry again. That's the idea you get because of a translating using the idea he's not bound. But if you look at the King James Version, and remember we're here to learn the Word of God. That's why we're going through this. When you read, I want you to understand what you're reading. And because the Bible is of the nature it is, as far as the versions and the kind of uh, text that comes through at times, we need to be looking at these things. The King James says that a brother or sister is not under bondage or under obligation in such cases. It's important, my friends, to understand that Scripture nowhere indicates that the marriage covenant should be viewed as being under bondage. In other words, these people who say that you are bound in your marriage and you are slaves to your marriage has the idea that marriage is a situation in which you are in bondage. The Bible nowhere teaches that. The Bible always teaches marriage as being as a union established by God based on a commitment and responsibility, sure, but it's never seen as enslavement or bondage. Never. And so to interpret this passage as you're under bondage to mean that one is freed from the bondage of marriage and you can remarry anyone now is contrary to the teaching of the Word of God. 
It's also contrary to the teaching of verses 10 and 11 that we've already read. Let me give it to you again. Verses 10 and 11. To the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. That's a specific command. The same is said concerning husbands, of course. The Christian spouse is not ever to initiate a divorce and remarriage is always forbidden. If it is fact done, now let me, let me back up here because right away people are going to start feeling. Remember, do not look at these as unforgivable sins or sins that only sinful people commit, meaning that it doesn't impact you. Sin is sin. All right? All sin can be forgiven, right or wrong. If that wasn't true, none of us would be here today. Isn't that right? You lie and you steal and you gossip and you are greedy every day, right or wrong. That's right. And you ask God to forgive you, and he does. Isn't that right? And you go on, you're living, and you're pleasing him. Well, that is also true of these individuals. We're just teaching what the Bible says now. All right, so let's keep that in mind as we go along. Paul repeats this command four times in these verses. Verses 10, 11, 12, and 13. Now, all of a sudden, to come down to verse 15 and to say that Paul says, No, you're, you are freed from your marriage. Can you do what you want? I'll be contradicting to all of them. All of Paul's former teaching would be a waste of time, just be foolishness. So you cannot see it in that way. And so I believe that the more accurate interpretation of not under bondage is, if the unbelieving spouse leaves the believing spouse, the believing spouse is not under obligation to keep the marriage together. He shouldn't have a guilty conscience about it. However, she or he is not free to chase him out of the house and then to go marry anyone else. Paul is saying that's not the case. However, he says, there is an opportunity. The amical relationships are maintained for that unsaved person coming to know Christ. The apostle next turns to address the apparent belief of some of the Corinthians that since they were living such terrible lives before they were saved, and they were. We talked about that previously. They said, now because of our lives were so terrible before we came to Christ, then it would be best for them to leave or to give up all of their former relationships or their former uh, social contacts after they become a Christian. In other words, let's make a complete break. My life was so sinful, so terrible before I became a Christian. Now that I am a Christian, I've got to get rid of everything, all of my relationships, all of my contacts. And they included marriage in this. If I was married to an unsaved spouse, then get rid of the spouse. That was their attitude. Paul takes the opportunity to address this philosophy in general, not just marriage. Look at verse 17. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Now here's the overall divine principle. Paul is saying, Stay in the position or relationship you were in when you were saved, after you are saved. Apart from it being a sinful one. Paul reinforces this mandate by stating that he taught the same thing everywhere he went. Every church, he preached the same truth. In other words, it's a universal divine truth. That if you are saved, you stay in the position and the relationship you are in, unless it's a sinful one. In other words, he's saying, stay put. The call to Christianity, the call to conversion, radically changes an individual's spiritual relationship. That is quite true. But that doesn't mean that it should affect all of the physical relationships that you have that are not immoral. And so I say, to paraphrase a popular advice, 
after you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, when it comes to your relationships in general, don't do anything. Just stand there. That's all. That's what he's saying. He then goes on to illustrate this mandate in detail. And I hope it clarifies it as we go along. He gives specific instances. He begins with the racial relationship in verses 18 and 19. Look at the passage. Was any man called, that is, was anyone uh, called to be a Christian? Was anybody saved when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called or in which he was saved, is what he's talking about. Of course, circumcision and uncircumcision has to do with what? It has to do with Jew and Gentile. So what Paul is saying here, if a Jew were converted, he should not be afraid to live on, in the relationship with his Jewish wife. Just because you are saved now, you don't get rid of your Jewish wife, who isn't a Christian, or isn't a Gentile even, if you want to put it that way. No, you stay married to your wife. If a Gentile were converted, he should not try to run away from his wife if she was not saved. These external differences are not what really counts, is what Paul is saying when it, become, when it comes to Christianity. As far as the essence of Christianity is concerned, the physical act of circumcision is nothing. An uncircumcision is nothing. What really counts is our relationship with God. That's what he's saying. What really counts is our relationship with God. In other words, God is concerned with the inward person more than he is with the outward person. He wants obedience rather than just mere conformity. Here's how one commentator explains this text, and let me read it for you. This is from the Bible Believer's Commentary, or Believer's Bible Commentary. He says, and I quote, Each believer is to walk in accordance with the calling of the Lord. If he has called one to a married life, then he should follow this in the fear of the Lord. If God has given grace to live a celibate life, a single life, then a man should follow the calling. In addition, if at the time of a person's conversion he is married to an unsaved wife, then he need not overturn this relationship, but should continue to the best of his ability to seek the salvation of his wife. What Paul is stating to the Corinthians is not for them alone. This is what he taught in all the churches. End of quote. Couldn't have said it better myself. Now, in applying this principle in a broader context, Paul then deals with the issue of slavery. Look at it. Verses 21 and 24. Were you called while a slave? In other words, were you saved while you were still a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. Paul does not make, let me put it this way, Paul does make another modification in his command. This is another exception. He says, if you are saved as a slave, don't let that pose a problem for you, thinking perhaps that you should be freed because you're a Christian. Some people have some funny ideas, you know. Now that I'm a Christian, I'm poor, Jesus can make me rich. Now that I am a Christian, I had all these troubles, Jesus can take all the troubles away. We have this kind of crazy idea that because I'm a Christian, all of a sudden, all of the bad things that I've done that brought on consequences, those consequences are suddenly going to be disappearing. That's not true, folks. 
In fact, you can just add some new ones on. You see, that's not true. And that's what was happening here. They were just thinking, not I'm a Christian boy, everything can be changed, so I'm just going to give up everything and just grab on to what I believe is best for me. So he says to the slave, listen, if you become a Christian as a slave, live the way a Christian is supposed to live. Now, but by the way, if you can get out of that slave, you can get free, go. That's what he says. But don't come there and think that now that you're a Christian, you deserve to be free or you must be free. No, 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 no. That's not it at all. You live for Christ no matter what position you may be in. Paul next turns its attention to how the principle applies to marriage and ministry. Just read this through and we'll come back to it another time. I want you to follow in your Bibles now because I'm going to read and make some comments as we go along. It'll be like Ezra again. Simply read the text, translate it so you'd understand it. Verse 25. Now let me say, we're coming to a section of Scripture here that's probably one of the most problematic passages in the Bible to understand. When he started to talk about virgins and all of that. But let's start here. Now concerning virgins. Now when you hear that word, what comes to your mind right away? Well, singles. Singles who have not had any relations, right? Normally. But you know, you have virgin men too. Most people, when you hear virgin, you only think of a woman. Right? I'm saying that because as you read the term virgin in this passage, sometimes he's referring to virgin men as well as virgin women. You understand what I'm saying? Right away, that'll help to get some of the cowwebs out from your understanding this passage. Now concerning virgins, it's better to see that as meaning the unmarried. Although he's applying it to women, he's talking about un those who are unmarried. All right? I have no command of the Lord. In other words, Jesus doesn't talk about this. Jesus was a wise man. He said, I ain't got myself in that trouble. I can let Paul take you that one. <laughs> I have no command of the Lord. In other words, no direct teaching by him. But I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. In other words, you're saying, I speak as a divinely authorized apostle of Jesus Christ. Someone who can be trusted with the authority invested upon him. Verse 26. I think then that it is good in view of the present distress. You see those words? Please do not leave that out in your interpretation of this passage. The words only apply when distress is present. If the distress is not present, then the commands are not applicable. Do you understand? That's important. Now, of course, you've got to define what kind of distress. We've got all kinds of distress. We've got economic stress. We got emotional stress, sexual stress, work stress, all kind of stress. But in Paul's case here, he was probably talking about persecution that some Christians were, were facing, uh, but not only that, uh, other kinds of pressures as well. I think then that it is good in view of the present distress, let's say in view of the present negative conditions, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. In other words, stay put. Remain as you are. Don't do anything. Just stand there. Are you bound? Meaning, are you married to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Don't get a divorce. He's trying to illustrate what he means when he says, stay where you are. Are you released from a wife? In other words, are you a widower? Don't seek a wife. Don't seek to get married. Stay put. But then he goes on. Here's another exception. Verse 28. But if you marry, you have not sinned. So you see, he's giving some caring advice. Because of present problems, troubles. Hey, don't get more troubled by getting married. But he says the same thing. Don't get more trouble by getting divorced. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if you have never married, if you're a virgin, she marries, she has not sinned. Yet, here's the, here's the thing now, such will have trouble in this life. And I am trying to spare you. Paul is a practical man. So ain't nothing wrong with you. It's not 
unbiblical. It's not against scripture for you to get married. But listen, in this present situation, it'll be foolish. It might be biblical, but it'll be foolish. What do you mean? You mean it's sometimes it's a foolish thing for me to do a biblical thing? Yes. Sometimes we could do something that is approved by God, but still is foolish to do it at the time. That's what he's talking about here. You will have trouble in this life. And as a pastor, he's saying, I'm trying to spare you this. And now, in a sense, he leaves the application to the individual. Do you want more trouble or not? If you want to get married in this present situation and you know it's going to cause you trouble, get married. It ain't against the word of God. But you're going to have some trouble. It's up to you. That's what, that's what Paul is saying. Verse 29. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened. That is, until the Lord returns. Paul is thinking the present distress and how short the time is before Christ comes. So that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Now, unfortunately, we get a lot of men living like that now. <laughs> we got some wives too, living like they ain't got no husbands, as well as some husbands living like they ain't got no wives. And they're not doing it because they think the Lord's going to, they're just not doing it. But Paul is referring to something else. He's trying to explain what he means to say, hey, what is priority now is not your happiness. What is priority now is not what you do for yourself. What is top priority is what you do to honor the Lord in your life. That's what he's getting at. I like what Dr. Harry Ironside says about this verse. Let me quote him. Dr. Harry Ironside says, Everyone is to act in view of the fact that the time is indeed fleeting. The Lord's return is nearing. And no consideration of personal comfort is to be allowed to hinder devotion to the will of God. And, and that's what Paul is getting at. Paul is encouraging these Corinthians to commit their lives to serving the Lord to the fullest extent possible. And he's saying now, I'm trying to show you that if you really want to do that, there's some things that you shouldn't do, even though you're allowed to do it. You know, a lot of people talk about freedom. They have a freedom to do this, and I have the freedom to do that. And therefore, they can do whatever they want. But you know, the Bible also tells us we have the freedom not to do those things that we have the freedom to do. You know that? We have the freedom not to do the things that we have the freedom to do. It goes on with this quote from W.E. Vine. The meaning is not, of course, that the married man is to refrain from behaving as a husband should, but that his relationship to his wife should be entirely subservient to his high relationship with the Lord, who is to have the first place in the heart. He is not to permit a natural relation to obstruct his obedience to Christ. That is what Paul is talking about. And that is the real message of this text. Nothing in this life is to distract our attention away from honoring God, from serving him in our life. He should always have top priority. In all of our choices, that should always be in the forefront of our minds. Am I honoring God for this choice? Is this choice going to allow me to uh, take away from my serving God? Or is it going to enhance my service for God? Is it going to distract from my honoring Him? Or is it going to enhance my honoring Him? He says, and that is true of all relationships, husband, wife, children, work, whatever it is. Our top desire should be always to honor God. That's what he's saying. The detachment, in other words, from temporal matters should characterize all Christians. But it becomes very complex to do that when we're married. That's what Paul is getting at. We want to be detached from temporal things. As Paul says, a soldier doesn't get involved with business to keep him away from his responsibilities as a soldier. 
Same thing with a Christian. A Christian shouldn't get involved in activities that would keep him away from honoring God in his life, from serving God. Sometimes God blesses people and give them more than they need. And they take that access to buy things that keep them away from the God who gave it to them. Rather than using it to bring them closer to God. It's amazing how that happens. Thought I want a new car. Boy, this car drive nice. I can't drive this car on Bay Street in the day. Too much traffic, so I can wait till Sunday. And I can drive all around Nassau three times, four times. Now, I can't go to church. Now, that's an outside argument. But I'm just trying to say, God blesses us with things many times. And we use the very thing God blesses us to keep us away. And so we get all kinds of excuses now how we could worship God. We could worship Him anywhere. On the beach, on the boat that He gave me. You know, I'm going to come here. I could go there. I don't have to come out on Wednesday night. I don't, look, I don't have to do anything, things. Because, you know, God has made it possible. I could fly away anytime I want to go. And so I do it. And we use the very blessings that God has given us to keep us away from Him. Paul said that shouldn't be. He should have top priority in our lives. He was not recommending that we should abandon our marital duties, our marital response. No, no, no. But he's saying, just remember, God comes before your husband and God comes before your wife. That's all he's saying. Just remember that. Put them in the right order. He was calling instead for commitment to eternal matters and a corresponding de detachment or separation from anything, any institution, any value, any substance of this world which is passing away, he says in verse 31. All of these things that we put time in that takes away time from God, they're going to pass away. But our relationship with God will not. All the other relationships, all the other activities, all the other business and such, everything, they're going to go away. And if you're going to spend all your time getting on, making all this money, but it keeps you away from serving God or spending time with Him, you're building your life on the wrong relationships. That's what he's saying. Verse 30, he says, And those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as though they did not possess. In other words, you say all of our experiences of life, whether they're sad, whether they're joyful, whether they're good, whether they're bad, all the material things of life, none of these should be given priority over eternal things. Everything must be given second place as we endeavor to buy up the opportunity to serve God while it is still time. Friends, time is short. Time is short. One of the things we say today, we're just talking with someone today, but we've got so much things to do. I ain't got time for this. I ain't got time for that. We should never say we don't have time to worship God. We should never say we don't have time to serve God. That's for this passage is all about. Why? Because all of the other things are temporal. Look at the verse 31. They're passing away. They're gone. But our relationship with God will go on. Someone has said the only two things that are eternal, I disagree with that. I think some other things, two main things are eternal. People and the Word of God. And that is true. But you know something else is eternal? The, our relationship with God. That is eternal. Therefore, we should do everything we possibly can to enhance that relationship right now. That is what Paul talking about. Look at verse 31. And then I'll close. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. Now, some of you might think that I don't want you to have fun. Don't go on the boat. Don't go on. That's not true. If I got a break, I can go on the beach even as a Sunday, Lord's Day. Now, I know you think I'm a heathen, but I'm just trying to make a point here. No, I'm not saying we shouldn't enjoy it. Paul is saying here that there's a legitimate use of worldly things. That means things in the world. There are a legitimate use of these things. 
But Paul is warning us that while we may use them, we shouldn't abuse or misuse them or let them use us. That's what he's saying. In other words, we should not live for food. I know you think that's what I live for. No. <laughs> we should not live just for food or for clothes or for pleasure or for things. Now, we need clothes. We need food. We need things. But they should not become the God of our life. Marriage, property, com commerce, political, scientific, musical, artistic activity have their place in this world and we should enjoy them. But if they become a distraction from our serving and worshiping God, then they become our gods. That is what Paul is saying. And so when he says the form of this world is passing away, it's just, this is a word that comes from the world of the theater, of, of where you have scenes come. Here's scene one, here's scene two. As soon as scene one is finished, scene two comes and it goes off. That's what's happening in the world. This thing happens, it's finished. This thing too shall come to pass. That's what happened. One event after another, just that yeah, goes and goes and goes. It's all temporal. The only thing that is eternal is our relationship with God. And he says, be sure you make that top priority in your life. That's what he is saying in the midst of teaching us about our marriage. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Take a few moments of quiet reflection. If God has spoken to you from his word concerning anything, talk to him about it right now. If you need to make a commitment, ask forgiveness, whatever it may be, take a few moments right now to do that. And so the message from this text actually boils down to something that perhaps you might say is not related to a marriage, but it is. And that is the answer to this question. What takes preeminence in our life? Is it God or is it me? If I'm involved and interested only in doing things that help me, that enhance me, that makes me feel happy, makes me feel good all the time, but it is distracting, taking away the times that I could spend with my God or serve him or worship him, then that becomes my God. Paul says, let's put our priorities right. Let's seek to honor God above ourselves. Let's seek to make him happy more than making ourselves happy. Father, thank you for your word. May we draw upon the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit to apply whatever you've said to us today for your glory. And all of God's people said, Amen.